All right, good evening. Welcome. I'm Mary Wood for the San Francisco Ballet Center for Dance Education. And as always, it's my very great pleasure to welcome those of you who are here with us in the green room of the Veterans Building in San Francisco, and also to welcome those who may be listening at a future date via a recording of this program. Welcome to tonight's Points of View program. This is Wednesday, March 6th, 2013. The Points of View programs are produced by the San Francisco Ballet Center for Dance Education, which is directed by Charles Chip McNeil. The adult programs are coordinated by Cecilia Beam. The Center for Dance Education produces a lot of programming. I know many of you are familiar. I see many of you at some of the different events, but of course I always urge you to go to the ballet's website, sfballet.org, where you can catch up on the latest programming, where you can get updates about events alongside of the performance programming, and of course catch these recordings. These, the points of view, as well as the Meet the Artist interviews, which take place an hour before curtain time at selected performances in the Opera House. I have a couple of updates that uh, we should call your attention to. Um, One is sort of a last call for the visiting scholar lectures. Onyegin is our next program, just coming up in a couple of weeks. And the visiting scholar, Tim Scholl, who is a specialist in Russian literature and the arts, will be presenting three lectures over the weekend of March uh, 23rd, 24th, and 25th and 26th, I think, covers it. Um, and the information is in the program, in the little brochure, about how you can sign up for tickets for that. I understand that there are a few left, but it's very nicely sold, and it should be extremely interesting. He's a specialist, as I said, in Russian literature and the arts, uh, very uh, appropriate around Onyegin. Another thing I might just begin to call your attention to, we are now with this program tonight, halfway through the season. The second half of the season does give us a couple of um, interesting things to look forward to. Our annual field trip downstairs to the um, Herbst Theater will take place during the Points of View program for Program 7, I believe. And I don't have the exact date of that, but you can find that. We'll call your attention to that. And then the last one, uh, the last thing I would mention is that the last Points of View program of the season, Program 8, will be held in the Norse Theater, which is actually down the street. And we will be sure that you have all kinds of information about that. Um, It's no secret that it is now time to do the retrofitting on this building. So for two years, we're going to be out of this building. And I will beg your indulgence and your patience while we find ourselves in another venue for this series of programs, which will, I'm confident, continue despite where we might end up. Excuse me. Um, This evening, we're focusing on program four. It's another program of various works, um, an older classic, a newer classic, and a world premiere. Starting with Scotch Symphony, 
choreographed by George Balanchine to the music of Mendelssohn's Scotch Symphony. He used just the second, third, and fourth movements. It was created in 1952 for the New York City Ballet. It was staged for San Francisco Ballet in 1966 and then revived last year. So this is an encore presentation this year. One of the things to keep in mind when viewing this piece is that this is a relatively early Balanchine work. Although he had created one body of work uh, for the Diaghilev Ballet Russe, in the late 1920s, including Apollo and Prodigal Son, and then another body of work in the early American years, the 30s and 40s, which would include Serenade, Concerto Barocco, Symphony in C, Theme and Variations, The Four Temperaments. Um, This one comes from the early 50s. It was a different era for Balanchine. The New York City Ballet in its current incarnation was only four years old. The great Stravinsky works, including the festival later, were yet to come. Uh, His American suites, Stars and Stripes, and Western Symphony, and uh, Square Dance, were yet to come. His full-length Don Quixote. So this takes us back. What you see in Scotch Symphony is a suggestion of romantic ballet in the presence of a sylph. You see a reference to folk dances of Scotland, which is actually a historical reference to um, the setting of the seminal romantic ballet, La Sylphide. What do we have here? Yes. <clears throat> and then we see a simple reference to a trip recently taken by Balanchine to Scotland. And we know that he was very often inspired by something that had just happened to him. There's clearly more going on than just pure dancing. And yet if we look for a story, a plot, we're not going to find it. Oh, what did I just do? Oh, Go back to that one. That's a pretty picture. Um, he was, it was created for the bravura ballerina Maria Tallchief and the technical virtuoso Andrea Glefsky, with Patricia Wilde, who was known for her great strength, as the Scottish lass of the first movement. I think we passed by her a minute ago. <clears throat> the dancing is bravura and difficult. The solo danced by this Scottish lass in the first section is devilishly fast and challenging. The lyrical and romantic pas de deux Lengthy and demanding. The men of the ensemble are called upon to perform movement that is technically difficult as well as evocative of the drills of the Highland Games. All in all, it's very pleasant to watch, as long as we keep in mind that this is Balanchine having fun with his own whimsies. Next on the program is Within the Golden Hour. This is choreographed by Christopher Wheeldon, created by him on San Francisco Ballet for our New Works Festival in 2008. He chose six pieces from the works of a young Italian composer, Ezio Bosso, 
And interestingly, he augmented them with the Andante movement of the Vivaldi Violin Concerto in B-flat major. It takes a keen ear to identify the switch. About this work, it has been written, actually quoting Christopher himself, that he, quote, wanted to do something the dancers would enjoy. And again, quoting Christopher, the ballet is like a series of small paintings or sketches that are inspired by the music. There's absolutely no narrative, but the style and emotional undertones invite us to wonder about underlying characters or anecdotes from which the dances have been abstracted. And this particular pose is becoming the signature pose of the piece, and it has also served as a poster for San Francisco Ballet over the years. And then finally, our world premiere, choreographed by Alexei Ratmansky, entitled From Foreign Lands, created to a piece of music by Moritz Moskowski, a late 19th century composer, Uh, This is a suite for orchestra entitled From Foreign Lands. Before I invite my guests to join us and we can really talk about the piece itself, just a few words about choreographer Ratmansky. He was trained, he was born in St. Petersburg, Russia, trained at the Bolshoi, and then he danced with the Ukrainian National Ballet, the Royal Ballet of Winnipeg, in Canada, and the Royal Danish Ballet. In 2004, he began a five-year stint as artistic director of the Bolshoi Ballet. And then leaving that, he was appointed artist-in-residence at American Ballet Theater. And that's a position that, fortunately for the ballet world, allows him to choreograph around the world. Along with the Bolshoi, of course, and ABT, he has created works for the Dutch National Ballet, the Kirov, the New York City Ballet, the Royal Danish Ballet, of course. He created the dances for the Metropolitan Opera's Aida. And his new full-length Cinderella will premiere at the Australian Ballet this September. Apparently, full-length Cinderellas are going around this year. He's received numerous choreographic prizes, recognized as the fast-rising and gifted choreographer that he is. He was named a Knight of Donnebrog for his contribution to the Danish arts. For us, you will recall, he created Carnival des Animaux, the Carnival of the Animals, in 2003. And then we danced Russian Seasons, which he had created in 2006 for the New York City Ballet, we danced it in 2009 and 2010. A few images to savor, which I think begins already to give you an idea of From Foreign Lands. And if it looks like fun... I hear that it's as much fun to dance as it is as it is to watch. And for that, we are going to hear from 
ballet master Betsy Erickson and company soloist Sasha DeSola. Betsy Erickson has a wonderfully deep history with San Francisco Ballet, beginning in 1964 as a dancer. She spent a five-year interregnum at American Ballet Theater, returned to San Francisco Ballet in 1972, retired from performing in 1984. She spent a number of years in Oakland as ballet master. She spent a year as the director of the National Ballet of Colombia in Bogota, and returned to San Francisco Ballet in, I don't have the date, 1992, a good long time, as ballet master with San Francisco Ballet. Um, And then soloist Sasha DeSola was trained in her, I don't know if this is her native Florida. She trained in Florida. She attended the Kirov Academy, which I want to hear more about. She was uh, joined the company here as an apprentice in 2006, as a member of the Corps in 2007, and was promoted as soloist in 2012. So with that, I'd like to ask them to join me here. sure we have all of the hardware here that we need. And I will ask you to say hello just to make sure that our levels are up. Betsy? Hello. And Hi. Sasha? Hello. Might need to speak hello. right into it. Yes. All right. <laughs> so um, this is always a pleasure because uh, to hear from dancers, we always get a wonderful, wonderful perspective, and to hear from someone with such a rich history with the company, and one of the things I want Betsy to talk about is having one foot in this history and one foot in the studio with a world premiere. But um, backing up a little bit, one of the things that struck me is that you have actually worked with every director of the San Francisco Ballet. Except the original. Well, okay. (laughs) Adolf Bohm and... 1933. No, not so much. Um, <laughs> we'll give you that. Um, but you um, really had your, the major part of your career with Lou Christensen. Yes, I did. Uh, I worked with Lou, Willem, and Harold. Uh, Harold was director of the San Francisco Ballet School, and of course Lou Christensen was director and uh, Willem was, at that point, he was already in Salt Lake, but he came frequently to visit San Francisco Ballet and actually um, brought with him some of his choreography, uh, which we performed. It was in the 70s and 80s, yeah. And then I can't remember if you were here when he actually assisted Helgi in restaging the 1986 version of Nutcracker. Were you here during that period? I w- no, I was in Oakland at that point, yeah. But um, And then you were here during the Michael Smeon years, and you've been here through the Helgi years. So um, I just think it would be fun for you to make a, a comment about the company, a snapshot of the company during each decade. Oh, my goodness. Um, well, the company was a lot smaller when I was a dancer, and we didn't really have the kind of principal soloist corps de ballet, we all pretty much had to 
have a hand in in everything at every level, uh, depending on what the repertoire was. And um, during the Lou Christensen years, we did a lot of Lou's choreography. We also performed a lot of uh, Balanchine at that time, of course, because Lou and Balanchine uh, had worked together over the years, and Lou greatly admired Balanchine, and so we did quite a bit of Balanchine. Um, and then also some contemporary work, and when Michael joined as Associate Artistic Director, uh, we did a lot of Michael Smune's work, so we had really a wide uh, spectrum of choreography during those years when Lou and Michael, because they were a little bit yin, yin and yang, a little bit um, different in their styles. Lou was really a classicist, and Michael was really a showman, and um, brought all kinds of wonderful jazz and lively things to the company. So we had a wide spectrum at that time, which was very, very rich and very interesting to perform. And then um, you have experienced during these last, gosh, I've done the math quickly in my head. It's about 20 years now. 21 years with Helgi. Right. Yeah. Um, broad spectrum. And what I find wonderful is that you have served as ballet master to some of the most creative and modern and innovative of the choreographers, um, Mark Morris and now Rutmansky. Um, That's probably uh, the most interesting part of my job is assisting the the various choreographers that come to work with the company and be there um, during the creative process, which is different with each choreographer and the way that I assist them and the way that I learn the ballets and the way I approach it is different with each one and finding the way to work the best to support each choreographer in the best way that will help them be more relaxed and connect them with the company. Uh, I've kind of found a way to work with each of them and as the years go by you get more and more Comfortable. I've worked with Alexi since he first came to the company uh, in 2003 to do Carnival of the Animals. So we have a good working rapport. And as well, Mark Morris, who I think was 93 or 94, did his first work with us, uh, Melstrom. And I've been working with him on each project that he, each new choreography that he's uh, choreographed for the company. So it's it's interesting over the years. It's like friendships that just keep growing and relationships and working that get richer and get more interesting as time goes on. Finally, um, do you ever hear Lou Christensen sitting on your shoulder when you're looking at one of the newest works or when you're working with some of the young dancers? This is a segue into introducing our young dancer. Um, either Lou or yeah. Michael or Willem sitting on your shoulder. Oh, yeah. Um, I hear Lou all the time. Um, and I, I find myself say, saying some of the same things to especially young dancers that Lou used to say. You know, you've got to get in there and grunt a little, he used to say, or, or swear or, you know, something like that. Uh, like, take a big bite, really get into the choreography and really give it a full energetic effort. Don't just kind of skirt around the edges. Go right to the heart of it and take a good bite of it. Sasha, it's delighted to have you with us. Um, I'll 
just say this we're we're just getting acquainted so this is going to be fun for me to find out a little bit more about you than what i could read in a postage stamp of a bio um you to me exemplify so many of the dancers who have come to the company over the last well many years um varied training come from around the country and of course internationally um and then you get here and it all gets put together into the salad or the the stew pot that becomes San Francisco Ballet. Um, You were trained initially in Florida. Um, Tell us a little bit about that, and then tell us more about the Kirov Academy. It sounds very St. Petersburg. Um, I actually started off as a jazz dancer in Florida and um, decided to do ballet when I was around 10 years old. And I trained at some smaller schools there, Central Florida Ballet. And um, when I was 14, I went to the Kirov Academy in D.C. Oh, so it's not in St. Petersburg. Not in St. Petersburg. No, in Washington, D.C., but same teachers from from St. Petersburg. Um, So I had wonderful training. It was such an invaluable experience. And... um, that was really where I felt that I solidified my technique. I learned classical variations. I learned about classicism and artistry, and um, that really solidified why I wanted to be a dancer that time there. And did you have any detours on your way to San Francisco, or how did you end up here? Um, when I was 16, I went to the USA International Ballet Competition and Varna International Ballet Competition, and I sent those videos to Helgi. And the day that I landed on the plane from Varna, Helgi called me on my cell phone. And I actually didn't recognize the number, the 415 number. I didn't recognize it. And <laughs> I answered, and it was Helgi invited me to audition, and um, I joined about a month later. That's a that's a great story. We have so many different stories, and yeah. that's that's just a real straight shot. Yeah. <laughs> um, you say you sent your tapes or your photos to Helgi. Why San Francisco? Here you were an East Coast girl. That's true. Um, I one of the biggest things for me was the varied repertoire. I really wanted to be able to dance not only classical, not only contemporary, not only neoclassical, but everything. And that's something that this company really has and values and its dancers also value that and um, that was definitely a huge draw, drawing point for me. One of the things that um, I've picked up as a kind of a theme and that is over the last several years Helgi has made a number of promotions um, from the corps de ballet to soloist mostly and they happen in the most um, sort of dramatic and and <laughs> charming and theatrical ways. Your own promotion was a little bit that way. Tell us about that. Um, We were in London, and it was actually the second performance that we were doing there, and I was dancing Helgi Thomson's trio, the first movement principle. And right after bows, he came backstage, and my promotion was a little different in that sense. Um, It was very private, just between he and I, and he told me that he wanted to make me SFB's new soloist, and I, you know, I was so excited. I started crying, and um, and then I had to go change and do the next ballet. <laughs> That's, great. That's great. You do your bows as a corded ballet dancer, yeah. and you do the next ballet as a soloist. Yeah. I just love it. <laughs> 
Um, one of the things I think that the audience is always interested in is um, that, that sort of hierarchical business of core and soloist and in principle in a place like I think the Paris Opera there are seven different very rigid delineations um, in the American companies it's much less um, rigid and one of the things we hear frequently, especially from someone like, I'm thinking Mark Morris, is how much, um, and I'm jumping around a bit here, Val Canaparoli is another one, how much they enjoy um, casting their ballets across the lines of the ranks. Mm-hmm. Um, and we certainly have watched you, as we've watched some of the other newer soloists, do featured roles for a couple of years now. What is really different about being about having the title, about being in that little section of the book. <laughs> um, it doesn't feel too much different, actually. Um, it's it's kind of similar, but you do feel, um, you know, I feel grateful to have the recognition of the hard work, and um, it's definitely, you know, being a soloist in this company still means maybe sometimes doing core work, maybe sometimes doing demi-solos work, sometimes doing principal work, and sometimes solos work. And um, that, in a way, is a wonderful thing because it just keeps you um, on your toes and ready for anything. It doesn't, you don't become complacent. Mm-hmm. Not complacent. <laughs> um, Betsy, just from the point of view of administration or management, uh, what does that mean in terms of casting, in terms of scheduling rehearsals when you have the different rankings? Anything you would add to what Sasha just said? Well, the only thing that sometimes I feel a little bit of a loss when someone, I mean, I'm so happy for Sasha, but I feel um, she's not going to be in the core of 24 Swans or 24 Willies anymore. And I feel that a little bit as a loss because um, those ladies who have had a little more experience and who are technically stronger are um, the leaders, really, of the core. And when they move up to soloist rank, that means that they're taking on new responsibilities and they'll be doing the solo parts in those classics, but no longer in the group of 24 swans. And so it's my loss in a way. Um, but as far as scheduling, I mean, it um, it doesn't really make that much difference. It, it's just that they're they're going to be involved in more things that are duets or trios or quartets, that kind of yeah. thing. They won't be in the big big groups. I anymore. think that's what I was thinking. More, yeah, is that yeah. Um, you just when you're casting your cores, you don't get to do those. How many of those saute arabesques? Yeah, <laughs> right. And the entrance of the second act of Swan Lake. Um, so now let's let's bring ourselves down to this um, world premiere, the um, from foreign lands, and um, Betsy. Let's start with you. You've worked with Alexi. Now you mentioned before, and when he, a choreographer comes to the company and says. It's time, or Helgi says, a choreographer is coming, and this is what we're going to do. Um, first of all, how does the ballet master get 
get chosen. You've already alluded to that. It's a long well, uh, because I've worked with Alexi on prior occasions, I mean, it's mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. usually you stay with a choreographer if you've developed that kind of a rapport. Um, so, yeah, I would mm-hmm. assume to be working with him on his new projects. And then when he arrives, um, I imagine that this is, as you mentioned earlier, a little bit different with each choreographer. But specifically with Alexi, how does he partner with you as he's creating this work? Well, he all choreographers start out by uh, usually watching company class if they don't know the company really well. And even if they do know the company, they'll still watch the company class, which is our warm-up and technique class that's every morning, every day. Um, and it's to choose the cast. So a choreographer needs to decide who he wants to work with and who's appropriate for what he has in mind. So he'll look at the class and he'll choose his cast. And I always encourage choreographers to also choose a second cast because between the creation of a new work and the actual performance, you never know, you know, if you're going to have someone maybe injured or or anything at all. But it's nice to have two casts because two casts always bring something um, to a project like that, and each person is a contributor, really, in something that's a small group. It's only 12 dancers, six ladies, six men. So uh, each dancer is really a contributing kind of a collaborator in the making of a new work. And and then Alexi, we are just talking about casting and talking about his music and how he wants to approach it. And he told me from the very first that From Foreign Lands was going to be an abstract ballet. Um, It was something that he was interested in doing. He said, "Uh, there's no story, I'm just going to do an abstract ballet. So as it evolved, it really um, didn't turn out to be so much of an abstract ballet at all because there's... I think he he cannot do a ballet that doesn't have some kind of relationship between the people who are dancing. Um, whether there's an actual dialogue there or a story, that's maybe for you to decide when you see it. But um, still, he has the dancers are really human beings, and they really carry with them a certain amount of relationship between them. It's not just an abstraction. So. Um, that's, that's really how he started, was with his music, with his ideas, and then the piece just evolved from there. He works very hard with the music. He sort of has an outline. He keeps a notebook on each work that he does, and he has an outline of the music and an outline of who would be dancing during uh, which section of the music, and then he works on uh, with himself and then with the dancers on the specific steps that they're going to do and he's still quite a fine dancer he moves incredibly beautifully he I imagine I never saw him dance but I imagine that he was a wonderful dancer and you can still see that even though he doesn't perform anymore Uh, he moves beautifully and everyone was blown away by how quickly he can move also because he's uh, tall and he moves, he moves faster than 
some of our fastest ladies move and covers ground just across the room incredibly. So it, it's wonderful to work with a choreographer who who approaches movement that way by feeling it in his own body and then seeing it in a dancer. And there's that that's the moment when there's that kind of collaboration of what looks right and what feels good to a dancer. Let's get um, Sasha's take on this. Uh, you've had the opportunity to work with any number of the choreographers. You've mentioned um, how wonderful it is here at San Francisco Ballet to have all these choreographers creating works on us all the time. So um, mention a few of the ones that you have had the chance to be in the room with while they were creating, and then maybe just a word or two of, so what characterizes them as different in their styles, ending up with, how was it to work with Radmansky? Sure. Um, Just recently, I've worked with, well, the world premiere, so uh, Wayne McGregor, Yuri Posakov, and Alexei Radmansky. And they're all very demanding in different ways. Um, Wayne McGregor loved to see how you could create his idea of a movement. He didn't have a specific movement in mind, but he gave you the outline of it, and you created it in your own body. So even between casts, the ballet was almost completely different. And um, with Yuri, um, he, I love him. He's amazing, and he is so emotional and attached to the music. And um, seeing him create Rite of Spring is just an amazing thing because he sits there and he just is feeling the music and somehow comes up with this choreography and these steps that he wants you to do. But mainly it's about the intention behind the steps. And lastly, Alexi, um, he's such a gentle person. It was really amazing to work with him because he's a gentle soul. And um, I think something wonderful about him was that he had a very clear vision of what he wanted, especially um, musicality-wise and even movement-wise, like Betsy was explaining. The way he moves is truly incredible, um, so much dynamic. And being able to see him do some of the steps gives us a much better idea of what we need to do, of how we should emphasize certain points or, you know be a little calmer at other points, and it's, it was very interesting to work with him. I would say, having seen the three pieces now, um, his is definitely the one that uses the classical vocabulary. Definitely. Whereas the others um, certainly have it in the background, but that's not the first thing you think of yeah. when you <laughs> see either Rite of Spring or uh, the, the um, Borderlands. Was that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was the Wayne McGregor piece. Um, the Ratmansky choreography looked very difficult. It's, I mean, like you said, it's the most classical of the three world premieres that we've had. So um, it is very difficult, and um, it it can challenge you, especially stamina-wise and technique-wise. But it's also lots of fun and rewarding in that way. Um, And there's a sense of community in his ballet. It's not about one or two dancers. It's about the group and how we all interact and um, there's that's rare also um, so it's a pleasure it's a pleasure to dance it 
How many of you have actually seen Program 4? A few people. So some, most of you are going tonight. Um, the whole concept you started to talk about, the second cast. So um, you are in the second cast no. of this uh, piece. So you haven't actually performed it yet. No. What I'm um, intrigued about is the dynamic in the studio mm. when the second, and sometimes they're actually third and more casts, um, are, are learning. Is that... Um, is there a protocol? Is there a, a sort of an ethical um, decorum for the second cast? Or do you really get included by the choreographer? Maybe different um, from different choreographers? It depends. It definitely depends. Um, in Alexi's case, um, I, for example, I'm in the Russian section, and he choreographed it on the first cast, but then he also watched the second cast dance it as well, and um, that was during the creation process. And... So we definitely are a part of it. Um, I would say the emphasis is on the first cast, obviously. Um, but I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I do think that we have some sort of, um, we are a part of the collaboration process in that sense. I, th- I think so very much. Uh, oftentimes when Alexi was creating the work, he would see the second cast, which is often working behind the first cast, and he'd go, oh yeah, the, show that again. You know, he'd see something happening that he liked and uh, include the other cast into the creative process. And, and that happened often because sometimes the dancer will pick up a movement or understand uh, something in a different way and he, it might be something that he wanted to explore. Um, and so he'll, he'll zero in on that and, and take something of their ideas of, of how they're working uh, some I just would like to say some choreographers never delineate who's a first and who's a second cast. And Mark Morris is one of those choreographers. You never know until um, a few days before uh, who is actually going to be the opening night cast or the second cast. And he'll name them uh, like a team, Team A, or in the case of Bo, which is on Program 3, it's team this and team that. <laughs> Just to be confusing. And so we never knew if it was this or that. <laughs> so um, some choreographers work in that way as well. They, they want to include all of the dancers in the, in the process, and then they'll make their decision who really is first cast. I'm thinking Val Canaparoli is another one who really creates for, for a depth of casting and oftentimes takes inspiration and maybe even different steps for a different dancer and a different cast. Mm-hmm. We'll be hearing from Val a couple of previews down the way. I can't remember which one. I think it's Program 6. Yes, Program 6. It is six. Program yeah. 6, Ibsen's House. Ibsen's yeah. House. Um, I just wanted to uh, quote something that um, is in your program notes about foreign lands, um, Alexi actually says, you can almost switch your brain off and just let your body do the choreographing because it's so danceable. Um, The music is, frankly, to me, was unexpected. And I loved it. It was so, it's so consonant. It's so easy to listen to compared to... um, 
the challenging Wayne McGregor electronic scores or the um, the John Adams um, Guide to Foreign Places it, or Guide to Strange Places, Strange Places. Um, they're just it's more challenging to listen to, and this is so. I'm going to just say it. It was a relief to have <laughs> really 19th century dancey music. Um, how how did you feel when he was making you dance to it? I, I loved it. I'm a classicist at heart, so um, I felt the same way. <laughs> um, it's wonderful because I feel that one of the most important things to me personally as a dancer is how the music expresses itself to you and how then you express yourself through the music and through dance. And so it's so easy with, with the, the piece that Alexi chose. And so it's a pleasure. It's great. The music sounds familiar, even though I don't think that we've ever... Um, I'm not sure that I've heard this composer before, and but it sounds uh, familiar. It sounds like something that you've heard before, maybe in Swan Lake or, um, you know, when you get a, lot, a selection of different ethnic um, kinds of music representing different foreign lands. And so that's exactly what this piece of music is, and that's how Alexei approached it with different styles and different... Uh, he himself, I'm sure, when he was young, must have studied um, folk dancing because there is an awful lot of folk dancing in this piece and very stylishly so, very fun. Uh, there's a, a wonderful interlude, though, that just kind of comes out of nowhere, which is between the Polish, which is the next to the last movement, and the Hungarian movement. And he choreographed that for one of the fellows, uh, Garen Scribner, and it's a wonderful kind of um, almost a, a more of a reminiscing moment. The music is very quiet and very beautiful. And it's sort of like he's reminiscing over someone that he knew or dreams about or in his memory. And then he leaves and it's just like it was just a memory. And it, it just kind of gives you this little glimpse into... Um, the depth, I would say, or the range of emotions that Alexi draws upon when he does something like this. And it, it's a beautiful little interlude. Um, almost want to see more of that. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's like, who is this guy dreaming about someone? Uh, but a beautiful moment. Looking at, um, we're going to be sure we have time to let the audience ask you some questions, but... Um I just wanted to quickly ask you, I didn't have a chance to prepare this beforehand. Did you actually appear in Scotch Symphony in 1966? I did. <laughs> I wanted to be sure and ask you about that. Yeah. So what, what is your just comment about having learned it way back then and then seeing it done now? Um, just kind of echoes in my memory. Uh, we only did it, I think, one year in 1966. And... Um, it was great fun to dance. We, we, over the years, did many, many pieces by Balanchine. And uh, Scotch Symphony is just really fun to dance. I was just in the group, um, one of the two ladies that have a little duet from the group. Um, so nothing huge. I had just... I was still quite young <laughs> at that point. But uh, it was great fun to dance, and the music is wonderful. 
absolutely wonderful music. Yeah, I don't think we get to dance to Mendelssohn all that much. Um, Midsummer Night's Dream is really the only other one that comes to mind. And it's funny because it's so dancey. Mm-hmm. Um, were you in, in Scotch Symphony in the I was at year? one point, but not right now. Ah. <laughs> Just wondering if, yeah. uh, you know, having danced so many Balanchine pieces, um, there's something so similar to this type of Balanchine. And I wondered if you had any observation or if you've had that much experience with the balancing cores to make any comment about it. Um, um, all I can say is what always impresses me about Balanchine is his depth and range of choreography. Each piece can be so different. I've danced from core to principal um, in four temperaments, leotard ballet, um, to... Scotch Symphony to um, Divertimento, and um, they're all equally musical, which is always something that I love about it, but um, also very stylized in very different ways, yet they have a common language. I know I always learned about the music by dancing mm-hmm. one of the one of the balancing pieces. Um, let's ask if the audience has questions for either Betsy or Sasha about anything about the dance, about performing as a new soloist, newish soloist. <laughs> yes. That's a great question. She's asking about handing down the choreography and about whether it's notated and how do we know that we're seeing the same dance now that you danced in 1966? Um, I'm not sure that it's exactly the same because actually Balanchine over the years made many revisions on his works up until his passing. And um, But I, th- I think it is quite quite similar. I don't, I don't think that there are a lot of differences, just subtle differences. Um, and the works are notated. There are two forms of notation, Benish and Laban notation, that um, oftentimes a choreologist will use. Uh, in this case, it's really something that's in, it was Maria um, Caligari. Caligari who staged this version, and um, so it's a little bit more current than the one that I did in 1966. Um, and it's, it's basically, with the Balanchine Trust, someone is in charge of maintaining and teaching certain ballets, and they teach them to whatever companies all over the world that uh, request them. And so it's, it's her version, or as she knows it from when she performed it and when she learned it. I think the most important thing is, is her knowing it and passing it on, that really ballet, unlike most of the other performing arts, is in the muscle memory mm-hmm. and passed on from dancer to dancer through the generations. And she did, uh, she worked with Balanchine also. So, you know, it, it's... A wonderful thing to have that kind of direct link to someone who worked directly with the creator of a work. Um, it's it's wonderful to get it directly and not secondhand or thirdhand. Um, and 
you just you feel the musicality, you feel the intention of the steps and the style. Um, it's just much more rewarding. Sasha, when you um, were just a core girl, and you were doing willies, and you were doing swan cores, how did you learn those steps? Did somebody hand you a, a book to read? Betsy. Betsy <laughs> taught me. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it, it's a kind of a series of events that takes place. Usually it starts out with Betsy or whoever the ballet master is for that ballet. Um, they, they teach you, you may or may not watch the video from prior um, performances. Um, in the core, a lot of the times, the senior core girls kind of told you what to do. Um, it, it's a, a lot of factors that go into it, especially in the core, I would say. But you never really read, like in music, you would be handed a score. No, that... Yeah. That does not exist for us. <laughs> so it's definitely handed, handed down. Yeah. Handed down from step body by to step. body. Yeah. Yep. Yep, step by step. And it's very special that way. Um, we, we like to point to some of our historic, um, the, the, her, the family tree of our history and who learned something from the person who learned it from the person who learned it very back to the, the creator, which might be Pettipaw. Um, and we have that in our very own uh, company sometimes. Um, somebody else? Question? In right there. Yeah. Little, little more explanation about first cast and second cast and how is that determined? And well, it's usually the choreographer that determines who he or she feels is the first cast um, by who they feel is, is um, the strongest and uh, the most capable. And oftentimes it just comes down to who has had the most time in the studio with the choreographer or the choreologist. Um, we're always under kind of deadlines and uh, things have to be put together oftentimes very quickly. And so sometimes it really just comes down to who has been able to devote the most time uh, to learn and to rehearse a role. And oftentimes that will be the person who will go on opening night. But we alternate casts and it's never, there's no golden rule about that like Saturday night will always be first cast it could be it could be first and second alternating every other night something like that um, it just depends I don't know if this is uh, this is a behind the scenes secret or if you can actually share but you talked about the fact that this piece in, from Foreign Lands the second cast will go on tomorrow night, so you get to have your first performance tomorrow, but there was a kind of a fun reason for that. So could you, can you share that? Sure. Um, well, there's only one set of costumes. 
So um, after tonight, they have to stay and make all the alterations necessary for the many costumes involved, and um, then second cast will continue for the rest of the run. <laughs> Usually we alternate, we'll yeah. alternate uh, one night, one cast, one night, the other, or even mixed casts. But in this case, we can't um, because there was only one set of costumes constructed. And it might be interesting to know that probably as a rule, there are backup costumes or the core costumes. If you see the back of them, they have four sets of hooks and eyes Mm -hmm. so that they can be hooked (laughs) depending on the ribcage of that particular (laughs) core girl. Um, And so this is a little bit unusual. It is unusual. Uh, the designer, Colleen, what's her last name? Uh, she actually is a designer who's worked a lot with movies and was up for an Oscar nomination oh, right, right, right. for uh, Snow White and the Huntsman this year and I think received an Oscar last year for uh, The Hunger Games. Um, and she's not used to working with ballet, really, so she doesn't, she doesn't know that we have to have costumes that are are sort of multi-functional uh, as far as heights and sizes and rib cages and things like that. So this is this has been a learning uh, experience for her um, because we need to breathe and we need to move in different ways than uh, actors who are on the screen. Colleen Atwood, right? Colleen Atwood. So it, it was great fun to work with her. She's um, very interesting and very energetic. And the costumes are beautiful, but there is only one set. <laughs> um, that makes me a little nervous about what happens if someone had to go in at the last minute. There would be a scramble in the wardrobe room. I can... Yeah. Knock on wood. I don't know. Yeah. No, it's not going to happen. Not going to happen. Okay, um, and we have time for another couple. Back there, yeah. That's a fabulous question. Um, how was this premiere chosen? In other words, um, how did Helgi come up with the idea to ask Ratmansky to do this work? And how did these three ballets end up on the same program? Can you speak to that, Betsy? Yeah, well, partially. Um, a lot of it is, is Helgi's wonderful uh, ability to put programs together that are balanced and uh, interesting and wide-ranged and unusual, and I don't know how he does it, really. That's something that uh, he may not even know how he does it, but he, he puts together seasons and programs that are just incredible and challenging and wide-range and contemporary and classical. Um, and Alexei, since he first worked with us in 2003, um, we all loved working with him at that point, and Helgi keeps inviting him to come back and create something for the company, and that invitation has gone on and on, and here it is uh, 10 years later, and Alexei is really, really busy. He is one of the busiest and prolific choreographers of today. Uh, he had just flown in from a world premiere in London with the Royal Ballet prior to this premiere, uh, he's all over the world, and it's very hard to get him. So I suspect that he was booked 
years ago um, for this time slot, and you know, luckily it, it everything worked out because schedules can change, but it worked out that he could come. I think it bears saying that the the um, administration of the company really does an amazing juggling act. It's like a Rubik's cube of um, when a choreographer or a ballet master is available and what big pieces are scheduled for the season so we can't have two of something going on at the same time. And it's really complex. And eight programs, some of them are full length, some of them are world premieres. It just boggles me. It's fascinating, actually. <laughs> we have time for one more question. Yes. How much of the choreography do you then become responsible for when the choreographer has left and you are the one holding the front of the room? I think I'm paraphrasing the question, but... Um, I learn it all and I try to know all everything, everybody's part in the ballet. Uh, that takes some time. <laughs> it won't happen the first year around, but as we repeat a ballet, um, I understand how everybody, where everyone is, what they do, what their music is, and over time I'll know everybody's part in the entire ballet. How do you, how do you keep notes? Do you have your own private? I have my own system, yes. It's, it's usually musically based. It'll be like by f- musical phrases. And I always draw pictures of where people are in space, how they um, how they're placed on stage so that I can do that very quickly. You're here, you're there, you go this way, you start with your right foot, you start with your left foot. Those kinds of things I, um, I have drawn out in a kind of a picture form, and then the rest is musically notated. Well, before we sign off, um, I just want to remind you that we will return here with... Um, visiting scholar Tim Scholl on the 27th, so I think we have a couple weeks off, and um, but we will be in this room for our next meeting, so look forward to having you all then. We look uh, emphasize that you should go to our website, sfballet.org, to make sure you're up on all of the latest of everything. And with that said, I want to thank Betsy and Sasha so much. This has been so interesting. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you.